Welcome to the Best of MBS, where you can enjoy some of the best interviews by Michael Bungay-Stanier, author of The Coaching Habit and How to Begin. You're listening to The Coaching Habit Podcast with me, Michael Bungay-Stanier. And if you'd like a little extra, Sign up for the exclusive insider-only content at boxofcrayons.com slash dispatch. Welcome, everybody. You are listening to The Coaching Habit Podcast. I am Michael Bungay-Stania, founder of Box of Crayons, author of The Coaching Habit. And in this podcast, I get to talk to smart, interesting people, teachers, writers, thinkers, sometimes even coaches about just how coaching or thinking about coaching has influenced and affected their lives. It's not just about technical coaching stuff. It's about getting into the juicy parts of other people's lives. And boy, I am excited about my guest today. I'm talking to Jim Knight. Um, anybody in the world of education, certainly in North America, will know the name Jim Knight. He is a huge influencer in that space and a great champion for bringing coaching into the world of education. Jim is the author of Instructional Coaching, a terrific book, um, popularizes that whole idea of what instructional coaching is. So, Jim, welcome. I'm so happy to have you on the on the line. I'm very happy to be here. I'm excited. And I was just hoping I could just sit here and listen to you all day. It sounds wonderful. I wish <laughs> I wish I could live up to that wonderful introduction, but There's I no, appreciate I, it. I, I was going to add about your Olympic medals and a couple of Nobel <laughs> Prizes, but I skipped that just for the for the, the sake of brevity. All That's right. probably good. I'm, I still haven't won the New Yorker cartoon contest, but I'm committed and working hard. So uh, I'm hoping. I can do, you, do you enter that? I, I, yes, I do. All right. I, I, I have a bet with John Hattie, who's a big educational researcher, as I'm sure you know, probably the most influential researcher in education. And he and I have a, a bet going that who will get picked first. And so far, we're tied at nothing. So <laughs> let's see how it goes. I saw the editor of the New Yorker talking about how they picked the winner. And, you know, they get, they get gazillions of entries. They have some poor intern work, enter them all. They're all on the computer. They all kind of, probably each cartoon gets about 10 different themed jokes, and everybody's joke is a variation on that. They get it down to a short list of 10. They send it around people in the New Yorker who vote on it, and then they get the winner from that. Oh. So there you go. Hang in there. It'll come good, I'm sure of it. Well, if, if you have any tips from the New Yorker, give them to me offline because I don't want John to hear. I want him to. I want to beat him. <laughs> All right. I like, I like your competitive spirit. <laughs> All right. I mean, obviously, the New Yorker, winning the New Yorker competition is probably the pinnacle of the work you're up to these days. But, um, you know, you've had a very jersey to get to where you are and such an influencer in the world of education. But what is the impact you're seeking to have in your work these days? I mean, you know, at Box of Crayons, we talk about bad work, good work, and great work, the work that has more impact, the work that has more meaning. So how do you think of great work these days? Well, for me, um, it sort of has a couple parts. One part is that um, impact is kind of a controlling theme. I've written several books that has impact in the title. We talked about high impact instruction, mm -hmm. talked about um, impact cycle. We talked about communication that makes right. an impact in the Better Conversations book. So Impact has been key, and it's really, to me, the work we do is really about what can we do to have the biggest impact on the quality of kids' lives. And that also probably means we have to have an impact and should have an impact on the quality of 
teachers' lives. So our big focus is that, and we're just continually, we're trying to create a kind of company that is clearly focused on moral purpose, and uh, we wanted to, I mean, have as much impact as possible. I'm not going to be content. Our catchphrase that we use to describe what we do is, every student, every day, and every class has excellent instruction everywhere. So we're always trying to make sure that we're moving closer to that goal. How do you how do you find the focus behind that goal? Because uh, one way of receiving that is a sense of overwhelm. Because there's an awful lot of students in an awful lot of classrooms getting an awful lot of instruction. Um, so I'm curious to know how, over the years, you've figured out where where the the greatest levers of impact, the greatest kind of places to to put your real time and attention are. Well, I really am influenced a lot by people like. Steve Jobs and all the different people who've written about simplicity and zoning in on the core and getting to the essence. I love Jobs' quote that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And, mm. you know, our coaching cycle that we follow is pretty, pretty simple, but it took us about 20 years of meddling around to arrive on something that's so blazingly obvious. And we want to keep doing that to figure out things like the kind of relationship between teachers and students. And so that would be one thing. And then I, when I read uh, Tipping Point way back a long time ago when it first came out, mm-hmm. I was struck by the whole idea of creating a virus and spreading ideas like a virus. In fact, I think I saw it first in Chixin Mahai's book on the evolving self. And, um, and so we're, we do take a kind of a viral approach to what we do. Not viral, like we're going to make a little funny clip that's going to catch on, but more that we're trying to spread health through a healthy virus. And mm. And so that those two things come to mind right now is, is essential, uh, simplicity and um, trying to spread these ideas. And we believe if you have something good and then it works, if it's, if it's in simple terms, easy and powerful, people will embrace it. And we're trying to always get, make our stuff more accessible, more focused and, uh, and more powerful. Is, is that the essence of trying to make something virus-like, in other words, catchable? I mean... It's funny you say that. I've said for years that the impact I personally want to have in the world is to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. So I've got that metaphor as well. Um, and I'm I'm now thinking to myself, God, did I did I get that from the tipping point without even realizing that that's where it came from? So I'm I'm curious to know how you get things to spread, and um, you know, what have you learned over the years from trying to to make that actually happen? Well, I don't think we're as good as we want to be, and I think there's two different kinds of viruses. There's the video clip of the cat going down the stairs that 2 billion people have seen. But what I'm interested in is, when I say spreading health, I think it's about just getting better and better at what we do and getting more and more simple. I think, um, I mean, my work has just been about trying to solve problems. You know, we start here and we go, well, we need to work more on communication. How will we address that? And Mm. then, and then how can we just keep refining it? So the, the book Instructional Coaching has a coaching model that's radically different from what we do now. What we do now is, in many ways, much more simple and more powerful, but that's, you know, that's what our outcome is. I, you know, I, I guess something that spreads has something to say, whether it's humor or whatever it is. I right. mean, something that spreads. But to me, I want to spread things that are people can see it's making a difference. One last quick thought about this is I want our focus on what's good for kids to be unmistakably evident to everybody so that when they interact with us, and we could easily fall short, but they should feel warmth and as corny as it sounds, love and affection and mm. kindness. Um, not that we're naive about creating a business and how you have to flourish, but but should th- there should be this real sense that these people are, 
they treat you with respect and we're spreading respect. So I think that's maybe another, I don't know if it's working or not, but that's certainly a strategy we're taking. I love it. That piece around where, where that takes me, Jim, is, you know, it's so yeah, people are looking for any excuse not to interact with you. you know, they're, fine, they're looking for the moment to be able to walk away going, ah, oh, they kind of let me down. So how do you show up kind of with full integrity and full, full sense of uh, your commitment being your heart on your sleeve so that people find it unmistakable as to what you're up to? I think we're transparent about everything we do. I think we position the people we work with as partners, which means we position them as the one making the decisions about what, what matters most to them. I think we're honest about what we, can, what we can and can't do, and we help people measure whether or not they're having impact. Yeah. And I think um, when you genuinely see the person, we don't manipulate people. We don't say we're, we've got a sale for the next two months and then the price is going to go up. We just say this is what it's going to cost if we have something that has a sale. We put a ton of stuff online for free. People can do it on their own. That's great. We're, you know, we're just here. If we can be helpful, this, these are the things we can do. And I think people sense that when they work with us. In a funny way, I think when you treat people with respect and you give them choices and you avoid manipulation and you don't use little tricks to get people to pay attention to you, I think they actually listen more. So, so that's where you're at now. I'm curious as to how you got here. You know, as regular listeners of this podcast know, the, the quote, the phrase I go to is, inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. So I'm curious to know what are one or maybe two kind of crossroads moments. And it's one of those moments where you're like, okay, I'm going to, I could go this way, I could go that way. And in going that way, it made all the difference as to where you've ended up. Well, um, you know, I worked in Toronto at Humber College and uh, I studied English and was going to do my doctorate in English. And then I got bitten by the education bug. I even did my comps in English at University of Toronto uh, before I switched to education. I had to do a whole different set of comps, which is some kind of mad sadistic torture but at any rate um, I, I don't know what comps are what they're like your practical comprehensive examinations oh, okay got it so at, Eng at the university of toronto i was understanding renaissance literature and all this stuff but okay. um but i started teaching and then i wanted to spread the word on teaching and i became this certified professional developer in this uh, approach called the strategic construction model and i was just kind of starting out quite young in toronto trying to get people to listen to me and doing workshops and i remember i did this workshop at the children's hospital. They had a, a center there for kids with learning disabilities. And um, I could just see during my presentation that people were, they were doing their best not to fall asleep. I mean, it was really, <laughs> they were just like seconds away from passing out. And if you'd recorded my presentation, it would have been a, you know, it'd be better than Ambien, I think. And uh, so that first couple presentations I did, and also I was like, you have to do it the way I tell you, and this is what you have to do. And I, I realized that what I was doing wasn't working and also positioning the teachers kind of as the receptacle for my learning wasn't working. And we were sitting around at the University of Kansas when I came here as a doc student from Toronto and, uh, we're, sitting, and we're talking about this grant we had to, and I was just one of the leaders of the grant as a doc student. And we said, well, if the teachers are going to use this stuff we're sharing, we probably need to go in the classrooms and show them how to do it, meet with them and discuss it and, and do all these things. And because um, they're not going to do it if we just do like a workshop, nobody's going to do anything. And I, uh, I don't know if it was me or who it was at the table, but somebody at the table said, well, if we know that's true, why don't we do that with other kinds of learning? And so that was kind of a light bulb moment where I said, oh, we need, right. we need to wrestle with that problem. That moment of going, okay, this whole premise on how we've been teaching people or hoping that they learn is a broken model. We have to shift everything completely. 
Yeah, I think it's kind of almost self-deception. I'll pretend you're going to do it, and you pretend I'm not boring you to tears, you know? Um, <laughs> and it's just it just lacks any sense of meeting people's needs, and they don't have a voice. And, and uh, so, yeah, I think there's this kind of mutual self-deception that takes place. So what I realized in, in the earlier conversation when we were talking about what you do I don't think we said to the people listening in what, it, what exactly it is that you do. So if that was the crosswords moment where you're like, wow, this is a way of thinking about helping people to learn that should saturate everything that we do, how do you talk about what you do now? Well, our focus is on doing what we can to have the best possible lives for the children in schools. Nice. And we, we work with schools. We want to encourage student attitude student behavior and student learning in ways that are healthy for kids. And, um, you know, we want to see students' well-being flourish in schools and help them be successful. And uh, we accomplish that through a kind of coaching that I call instructional coaching, which is um, about positioning the teacher as a partner, helping them set a goal, helping them identify some teaching strategy to help them hit the goal, helping them learn that strategy, sometimes by using checklists to precisely describe them, sometimes by modeling in some way, maybe looking at a video, maybe we come in your classroom, maybe we go see another teacher. Mm -hmm. And then after we've explained it, having it not, in most cases, work, and we have to make adjustments until we actually hit the goal we set. First time through, odds are it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. and, and that work of instructional coaching is not like your 10-minute coaching. It's a long-term relationship, but it's really helping the teacher translate research into practice in ways that are, you know, as Heath and he say, it, it, the goal has to hit them in the gut. It has to be a goal that, that it's the thing, as you say in your book, that they wake up in the middle of the night thinking about. It's what they're right. thinking about when they drive home from school. And nice. so we get that goal. And then what we're doing is we're helping them hit the goal. We're not trying to talk them into anything. We're providing a, a real service. Lovely. So part of what you stand for and what I stand for and why I'm so interested in this conversation is that kind of commitment to ongoing learning to kind of improving ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I found that <laughs> the older I get, the more I seem to be aware that I just seem to be learning the same damn lessons over and over and over <laughs> again. It's like the same lesson just showing up in a slightly different way. So I'm curious to know for you, you know, what's the hard lesson that you've had to learn or maybe you have to keep on learning? Oh man, do you want it personal or do you want it professional? You know, I would go wherever the juiciest answer is. <laughs> that would be personal then. I think there's a few of them that are all kind of together, but one of the hardest lessons I've learned is um, I'm not as good as I think I am. Just like you say, <laughs> your, your, your advice isn't as good as you think it is. Yeah. You know, sometimes people will say, Jim, you're kind of humble. Well, that's because I have to keep a grip on my pride from taking over all the time. But, right. but life has helped me become humble because I know how lucky I am to have the help I have. And uh, so... That recognition, like, I think I have a reasonably clear understanding of what I can't do, and that helps me be a better learner because I'm fully aware of the limitations. Right. I think probably the most important thing I've learned in the last 10 years is that um, as much as I love my work and it consumes a lot of my time, the most important things in my life are my wife and my kids. And um, I can't let work keep me from focusing on the most important things. Or in the long run, I'll end up really disappointed, you know, empty. I think it's very hard. I like this concept I learned from somebody of selective incompetence of <laughs> right. saying, you know, there's just some things you're not going to be good at because, you, you know, I would rather be not so good at email mm. 
and good as a father and a husband than not so good as a father and husband and really on top of my email. And so to me, probably <laughs> can't, the most... I can't believe you're disrespecting your inbox like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at 185 messages right now, but only one unread. But anyway, um, so I would say, I'd say... Um, I love that. Yeah, selective you, incompetence. It's a, it's, a simple, it's a simple thing to say that the most important things need to be the most important things. But I learned that the hard way. You know, I was going down the wrong road and I had, to, I, you know, I almost lost a lot of, a lot of what matters to me about five years ago. And it, it, I read about it in the new book, actually. And then it kind of, I recognized that I don't want to be great at my job and bad at my husbanding and parenting. Lovely. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. You are a, a very experienced coach and you've thought about coaching a lot. In my experience, uh, as you do this a lot, you tend to, at least I tend to, I won't project onto the whole world, um, I, find <laughs> that, I find that I've got tools that I keep coming back to. Some, you know, I, I've, I've got a bunch in my toolbox, but there are just some that I keep pulling out because they seem to have particular resonance or impact or reliability. So I'm wondering for you, when you're helping somebody, do you have a favorite tool or a process or a model that you go to time and time again? I mean... This is a great chance to kind of share something for the people listening in to go, yeah, I'd like, I'm going to steal that tool or that process from Jim. Well, I really um, think one of the, I'll give you just a couple quick things. One of them is I think the partnership principles that we talk about drive our work. Right. And uh, we've been uh, lucky enough to work with people from all over the world. And, and I would say the one thing we hear back on the most is people are grateful for the partnership principles. I think it gives them a vocabulary for understanding the kind of relationship they want to have with other people. Because coaches, especially instructional coaches in schools where there is some kind of explanation of ideas, they're afraid they have to look like the expert. And then when they look like the expert, nobody's really excited to embrace that. I always say <laughs> teachers, and I might've heard this from somebody else, but teachers love to learn, but they don't really like to be taught. Right. And um, so I think the partnership principles would be one thing that comes to mind. Um, and and as, what, as what, are the, what are the partnership principles? Well, the core idea, and it comes from Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is where I first started thinking about this. And then a whole host of other books like Peter Block's book, Stewardship, and the mm -hmm. work by Rian Eisler and a bunch of other people. I started to explore partnership. But the core idea is I see the other person as, as an equal. And because they're an equal, they have autonomy and choice and voice in what we do. And, and then we engage in dialogue, not me telling them what to do. But there's a real sense in both our brains are actively involved in the conversation. And that work is, involves reflection and it involves deep reflective application of the ideas to our lives and to our society, which is where praxis would be a principle. And the last thing is that it's a reciprocal relationship. Right. It's a back and forth thing. I think that the way we approach coaching, we call it dialogical coaching, not facilitative coaching. And facilitative coaching, you position the participant as somebody who already knows what they need to do and you're just listening and asking questions and you withhold your ideas. And in dialogical coaching, you don't give in to what you call the advice monster, but you share your ideas, but you share them in a way that makes it very, very easy for the other person to share their ideas. Right. And so it's a back and forth. Both our brains are involved. If I'm not sharing my ideas, we're not engaged in dialogue. And so for, for dialogue to happen, I think both people have to share their ideas. But, but I can't, if I'm sharing my ideas as advice and, or looking for confirmation that I've got it right, we're not having a dialogue either. A dialogue has to be an equal sharing of ideas. There are going to be people who are really curious about this. Is there a place you can point people to, a book or somewhere on the web where people can find more out about more of these uh, partnership principles? 
Oh, I think if they just look up Jim Knight, Partnership Principles, probably the the best book on partnership is Unmistakable Impact. But um, if you Google around, you can find it and save yourself a lot of money and not have to buy the book. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, the distinction between different approaches to coaching, same thing. If you looked up Jim Knight, Directive, Dialogical, and Facilitative, you could find it there. I'm, I've got it uh, online as a blog. So if you Google yeah. those things, you'd find the blog too. Perfect. And because I'm going to say we're, our work here is all but done. And, and in some ways, it's remarkable to me we've been going for 25 minutes because it feels like we've barely got going. This is when you and I hang out, we actually end up spending hours talking <laughs> about this stuff because we kind of geek out about it. Um, right. But for people who are also interested in your work in general, you pointed them to some stuff. Is there a place on the web that you can point them to to say, look here? Two things I'd say. One of them is our main website is instructionalcoaching.com. And the second thing is the blog is RadicalLearners.com. Either of those places, but probably InstructionalCoaching.com would, would be uh, the starting point. Perfect. Jim, it's a pleasure. Uh, I know we've got other little parts of this, uh, this interview that we're releasing, but I've loved this main conversation with you, so thank you. I have loved every conversation you and I have had. I'm grateful for all of them. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the best of MBS. You can discover more great content in MBS's newsletter and in his books at mbs.works.